And now, deep thoughts. Hey, you're listening to Deep Thoughts, where each and every episode explores one aspect of the Christian faith a little more deeply. I'm your host, Matt Schantz. You might recognize the voice of my guest from the Knowing Faith podcast he co-hosts with Jen Wilkin and Kyle Worley. He was on staff at the Village Church in Flower Mound, Texas, where he started the Village Church Institute, where he prioritized making the Bible and theology accessible to everyone through transformative learning environments within the church. He now serves as the lead pastor of Storyline Fellowship in Arvada, Colorado, and is the author of the new book, Deep Discipleship, which is all about forming deep disciples in the local church. And now, here's my deep conversation with JT English. Hey, JT English, welcome to the podcast. Man, it is a joy to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, you're you're pastoring now in a in a church in Colorado. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So I was on staff at a church in Dallas for about the last six years, and then, uh, kind of ironically enough, interviewed at a church last March, March eighth, here in Denver, Colorado, and they called me to be the pastor the first week of the pandemic. So trying to figure out how to pastor people you haven't met yet has been wild, but. But yeah, I'm enjoying it, man. Lord's been so faithful. My family's loving Colorado, and we're really glad to be here. That's pretty unique, starting uh, at the start of the pandemic. How are you finding pastoring in the midst of a pandemic? Man, it's, it's. It, I think it's, it, oh gosh, I'm not even sure where to start. There's yeah. pros and cons to it. Like, just to give you a little context. So my first week, they, you know, they call me March 13th, March whatever, 15th. And then my first 15 sermons to a church that I'd never met before or to a camera. You know, so a lot of the guys who were obviously hating preaching to a camera was tough. I was preaching to a camera and I couldn't even see the, like I couldn't even think of somebody who was a part of my church that might be listening. And I'm worried, wow. they have no reason to trust me. You know, are they going to even listen to this stuff? I mean, I was seeing God's faithfulness. It's certainly not been perfect, but man, he's just been faithful to us. Here in Colorado, we're allowed, we're, you know, we're just kind of slowly gathering and uh, have people coming to our services. And since May, We've had 750 or about 700 brand new visitors to our church. And a lot of them aren't like, they're just like, they're looking for meaning in a world where they feel like they've lost meaning and they go to the church across the street and they're trying to figure out, Hey, do you guys have answers for suffering? Do you guys have answers for loneliness? And so it's been, again, it's been super hard. Like the last 10 months have been the longest 10 years of my life. Um, but at the same time, the Lord's just, I think he's creating a fertile ground, which man, if that's what it takes, I'm in for it. Hey, that's encouraging. And I hope that broadly speaking, that's something that comes of all this. That would be incredible. Um, That's our hope. I was listening to a podcast the other day where a guy said, crisis precedes renewal. Uh, and I've just kind of like clung to that. Like maybe the Lord's just shaking our hands off of a bunch of stuff so we can put it on stuff that actually matters more. Yeah. Amen. Hey, some people refer to Colorado as the poor man's British Columbia. Is that fair? <laughs> What's funny is no Coloradoans ever said that. So I've never heard that phrase before. <laughs> I, I, I just, but, I just, made, I just thing. made it, I just made it up. No one's ever said that, but uh, okay. I just wanted to see. What you I, I've never, I've never been to BC 
but I have seen pictures and it seems like it might be accurate. Like I love Colorado, but you guys, you guys have something special up there. That's for sure. It's pretty awesome. Hey, when, when Canada decides someday to open their border to you again, I, I encourage you, JT, come up, man, come on up. You'll love it. I would love to do it, man. I would love it. The only place I've been in Canada, my, my, uh, my dad and I, when I was a kid, we were living in Denver, actually. We, we came up and we just, we actually drove straight from Denver up to Banff. We went to the Calgary Stampede oh, no and just, yep. Just getting to see some of that, that country. So just at, we went to Lake Louise. Like we drove, it was like a six day drive there, six day drive back. We went to, uh, like Devil's Tower, Mount Rushmore. Uh, just try to kind of see different things on the way up. It was one of those trips I'll never forget with my dad when I was a young kid. Hey, you you picked some beautiful spots in Canada. That's awesome. Hey, just just to get my bearings with who JT is, here's another sort of random question. If you could go to a Broncos football game, a Rockies baseball game, a Nuggets basketball game, or an Avalanche hockey game, which one are you going to? I would go to a Rockies baseball game, and let me tell you why. So I grew up, my parents got divorced, and I was in first grade, and my mom was the vice president for the Colorado Rockies for 24 years. What? So I basically grew up at Coors Field, and I can't wait. I've not been able to go to a game since I've been back, so I cannot wait to go back to a game there. But that being said, I loved all of them. Like, I imagine some of your listeners are big abs or hockey fans, and so when I was growing up here in the 90s, the abs were great, and they had, like, Oh yeah, Adam Foote and Dead Marsh and Sackett and Patrick Waugh. I mean, they were just unbelievable. Oh, yeah. And so I was at the game, gosh, what year? Maybe 95, 96, where they beat the Detroit Red Wings for the uh, Western Conference title to go to go to the Stanley Cup. And in that series is when, like, remember the two goalies met at, like, <laughs> at center ice and, like, had a fight? Oh, that's like, Patrick That was one of the best sure. series. Yes. I, I'll, never for, I'll never forget that game. <laughs> Goalie fights are, are, like, a national treasure up here. Uh, that's, 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 like, the highlight of our news when that happens. That, that runs first on our news cycle. That's big stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't matter what else happens. Two yeah, goalies exactly. fought yeah. today. <laughs> I love it. Hey, well, before we get into the content of your book, book. Uh, can you just give us a brief summary of your own journey of coming to faith, your own discipleship growth sure. in the early goings, and then and then a little bit about being a part of a pretty sweet season at the Village Church in Texas? For sure. Yeah, I mean, the Lord's been so faithful to me. I, I grew up here in Colorado. I've already told you a bit about my family. My parents got divorced, and though they were wonderfully loving parents, great home. I didn't grow up a Christian, uh, kind of a, just think of a post-Christian secular environment largely, uh, high morality standards, but kind of separate from the Lord, from the gospel. Um, was really involved in sports as a kid. My mom, obviously, with the Rockies, and I played basketball and baseball and just enjoyed kind of the sports lifestyle. Uh, and then I got to college and realized I was terrible at sports. <laughs> right? Like, you're really good in your little little high school, and then you get to college. And I'm like, ah, you know, so I, I went to school at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, and a guy just randomly invited me to a campus crusade for Christ Bible study, for which I said no to about 15 times, just didn't see the need or desire. Right. I eventually showed up, and they were in a book in the Bible called Jonah, which is kind of an obscure Old Testament, really short story uh, and that I didn't know anything about. Like, people joke about the Jonah story. I, I, did, I had no idea what was going on. And I couldn't even find it in my Bible. Like, the guy was like, open to Jonah. And I was like, I don't know how to do that. So it took me some time to get there. <laughs> uh, and you can't go to the table of contents. Because if you go to the table of contents, they you're outed. Like, yeah. you're the guy <laughs> that doesn't know their stuff. And so I was just, like, super intimidated. Uh. 
But eventually, part of the story of Jonah is, is uh, a, a disobedient prophet that God extends mercy to. I mean, that just mm. captured me. I didn't understand the gospel yet, but I was like, wait a second. God, like, I thought I had to be perfect. I thought I had to be morally excellent. I thought I had to kind of, even though I didn't, wasn't a Christian, I, I believed in a God and believed, you know, I should be good. I should live a moral lifestyle. But you would show mercy to somebody who, who hasn't, and it was directly disobedient to you. So a few days later, a guy sits down with me and just shares the gospel. God loves me, that he created me, that I'm a sinner broken and separated from him. But but through what Jesus has done, I can have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And then I just believed, like the Holy Spirit filled my heart and I experienced conversion. And from that moment on, like, it wasn't like this radical thing. I mean, I still struggled and had issues in my life and had to wrestle through things. But like, I just I had a relationship with Jesus and I wanted to give Jesus glory in my life and I wanted to know him deeper. And so I got really involved with Campus Crusade, which is a campus ministry and loved it, had a great time, but I never really learned my Bible, never understood, like, you know, I, I knew I knew that Jesus loved me, but I never really understood, how do I read my Bible, and how would I teach it to somebody else? So I went to my pastor at the time and said, hey, how do I, how do I grow? Like, I, I love Jesus, but I want to grow deeper with my relationship with Jesus. And he says, oh, you want to grow? You need to go to seminary for that. And again, I'm so far outside the Christian bubble that I just said, what seminary? Like, I didn't even know what that was or that it existed. And he said, that's a place where you can go and like get graduate degrees on the Bible and theology. And I said, this place sounds awesome. Like, I'll go. So I went and I did a THM, uh, Master's of Theology at Dallas Seminary. And then I did a PhD uh, in Louisville at Southern Seminary. And my experience in school was awesome. Like, I loved it. I just, I loved taking the scriptures. But even when I was in school, I, I would think to myself, like, I'd leave class and think, why are churches not teaching this stuff? Churches at times can feel so, um, I don't know, dry or shallow, or they're leading out the meat. And I would even be like, this stuff is gold. Why are we not teaching this stuff? So towards the end of my PhD, uh, I got connected with a church in Dallas called the Village Church and kind of shared my passion and said, hey, we really need to be making deeper disciples in the context of the local church. And so they hired me to start an institute. And the idea was we need to teach more Bible, not less, more theology, mm. not less, more spiritual disciplines, not less, and not make them leave the church. Like, the biggest question I had was, why do people have to leave the church in order to lead in the church? And so we said, let's let's be a small part of trying to fix that. And so we created these environments where people didn't have to go across the street to a seminary or a Bible college to learn, but could do it right there in the context of the church. And what was wild about that, I know I'm being long-winded here, but just, just to kind of maybe cap this off, we thought it was going to be like a dozen people. You know, we were, we were praying and thinking, man, and the village is a big church. The campus I was at was about 5,000, 4,000 people or so at the time. And we were expecting, like, you know, this is going to be 12, 15, 20 people, Lord. Wouldn't you just bring us your remnant, you know, the <laughs> people who really want to learn their Bible? And we had 459 applicants for a year-long discipleship program that first year because people were just desperate for more. Like, they, they, like the number one piece of feedback that we got when I was at the Institute was, I've been in the church for 20 years. Why has nobody told me this? Huh. I've been, I've been coming to certain, and not just TBC, I just mean any church. That was, that's not an indictment on TBC at all. They were the church that wanted to do this. But I mean, it was, it was, and it wasn't like your young intern guy who wants to be a pastor, maybe. It was like our, my greatest student was a mom of five who actually moved to Storyline with her family to help us start it here next year. Like she just, and they're not in ministry. They're, they've, they have no desire to be professional Christians. They just love Jesus. They love the Bible and they want people to know the Bible. 
Well, that's incredible. And you, you open your book by what you call diagnosing the discipleship disease. And so, as, as you look yeah. across the evangelical church in North America, very broad strokes, obviously, but, but what's your diagnosis? And doctor, don't, don't sugarcoat it. Tell, it. tell it to us straight. <laughs> what's the right. discipleship disease well, you're diagnosing? Well, if anybody's been diagnosed with anything before, you know that the diagnosis is serious because it, it helps you know how to treat the problem. And one of the things that I try to talk about in the book is that we evangelicals or Christians, Bible church people, whatever, have believed that our greatest disease is that we're too deep. And we even like will joke about like in sermons, like we're, you know, this isn't about intellectualism. This isn't about how serious we are. You know, this is about the heart. And there's truth to that. Like I get that. But like the funny thing is, is nobody, like, nobody in the world looks at the evangelical movement and thinks to themselves, those are the deep people, <laughs> you know, yeah. those are the ones who, who have really intellectualized what they believe. If anything, they think we're far too shallow. And that was my experience of kind of entering into evangelicalism is, is rather than a depth, I found a shallowness. And if you think that the disease is shallowness, that or uh, sorry, if you think the disease is depth, you, you that's the diagnosis. What you're going to do is you're going to create ministry environments and platforms that help people be more shallow, not more deep. So it's, we have the exact wrong diagnosis of our actual disease. Our disease is not that we're far too deep, but that we're far too shallow. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing is like, this isn't just about like a ministry program and how do we get better Bible studies in the church that our ministry environments don't reflect the nature and character of God. If God is an infinite well of beauty and perfections and goodness and glory, then why would we not want that depth? Like if he is the well that we can go to that never runs dry, why would we, why would we ever stop going to it? So, so my greatest frustration was that our ministry environments don't reflect the nature and character of God. They don't, they don't reflect the beauty of who Jesus is and what he's done. So let's, let's try to create deeper disciples. So again, broad strokes, the, the church at large has required less of its people than their beer league softball team or Costco membership has. <laughs> and this, That's this, right. and this we were, low bar, sorry, this low bar, this lowest common denominator discipleship has unsurprisingly led to surface level disciples. And so, so you state your That's hope right. in the book is to introduce a paradigm that will help local churches implement a philosophy of ministry that will grow and mature deep holistic disciples. So a lot of that has to do with what, what you say is asking the right questions and thereby focusing on the right answers and desired outcomes. So can you flesh that philosophy of ministry, that paradigm out for us a bit? Yeah, I, I love to Thanks for asking. So, I mean, again, part of the assumption that you just teased out there is that people are not afraid of commitment. They'll commit to CrossFit or Whole Foods yeah. or marathons. They're not afraid of commitment. They're afraid of meaningless commitment. And for a long time, we've been giving them meaningless commitments. You know, just kind of be part of this small group thing that we just kind of get together and talk. It's like, why? Why, why would I do? Why would I do that? Yeah. And so, when we ask better questions, we're we're going to come out with better solutions. And so, some of the questions I ask in the book is, like, what? Why in a market-driven economy have churches only asked the question, "What do disciples want?" As if we're marketers, not ministers. Mm-hmm. What if we ask the better question, "What do disciples need?" Like my kids, for example, like we, we is wild. We still have Halloween candy at our house, and like because we just give them a piece or two a day. Like they have big mountain bowls in October. But like, if my kids came to me every single night, and I just said, "Hey, what do you guys want for dinner?" What is their answer every night? 
It's going to be Halloween candy. <laughs> like we, we have to have a treat. But like as a parent, my responsibility, of course, I'm going to give them treats and candy. Like I'm, I'm the fun dad. Just ask my wife. Uh, but like my job is also to give them what they need to be to be flourishing human beings, whether it's protein or vegetables or milk or fruit, whatever, because that's that's what we're doing. The same thing as churches is we've we've been forced into this market driven economy where we're, we're we're in a competition for people's desires and for their time, where we're just giving them what they need, what they want, so that they'll come back, rather than giving them what they need for life and godliness. And so, so what does a disciple need? I mean, they need the Bible, they need theology, they need spiritual formation, like the real guts of the Christian faith, not the stuff that just kind of keeps them coming back for that next dopamine hit of a Snickers bar or whatever. And so what we've done in the churches I've been in is we really narrow our scope of discipleship and say, we, we would like to see people grow in their knowledge of God through scripture, through theology, and through the practice of spiritual disciplines. And anything else might be fine, but we're not going to do it in the church. That's a great answer. I mean, consumerism, it, it, it's no shock, but if we're not asking the right questions, it, it shouldn't surprise us that consumerism has found its way into the church because everywhere else, marketers, advertisers are asking, what do people want? And that, when that question's okay. asked in the church, um, we're not usually led to the right responses, but, the, but just clarifying the question, turning the question to what disciples need is just really super helpful. Um, we've been we, we've both been around Christians uh, who are really keen about growing in their biblical knowledge and rich doctrines and, and church history. And and you're advocating for really teaching the scriptures well in the local church. You're advocating for. Uh, learning doctrine, theology. Um, but we also know people who are given those things, and then that knowledge seems to puff them up and lead to pride more than humility, right? It's such a classic case of the crookedness of the human heart that by learning the deep things of God, if we're not careful, we can become conceited rather than humbly submitted servants of Christ. And so, as you as you advocate for, for solid theological training in our churches, and rightly so, how can we at the same time counteract the pride side of things and not turn out arrogant religious people instead of mature disciples? Totally. That, that, that's such a good question. And it was honestly one of my greatest fears and concerns because the fastest way to get something like an institute shut down at a church like the village is to produce a bunch of punks. Yeah. You know, so like from day one, I was concerned about culture. Like if I get a year long Bible program and all of these people are a bunch of jerks in the church after they leave, like we have failed. This isn't just about doing better on a Bible literacy quiz. It's not becoming a more loving person. Mm. And so from day one, culturally, we tried to tie theology to worship and to charity. You know, worship and theology are two sides of the same coin. If your theology isn't leading you to worship, throw it out. Throw it out. You've got a crappy theology. If your theology isn't leading you to greater humility, throw it out. You've got a crappy theology. Mm. And I even, I, I would even teach some of our students, you know, I think it's what, John chapter 3, Jesus interacts with this guy named Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is, uh, I, could be, I could be getting the story slightly wrong, um, but uh, or the text wrong, but he interacts with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is asking about eternal life, and, geez, and typically we think the Pharisees were these like Bible wizards, they were the ones who knew everything, and they were jerks, but Jesus, when he interacts with Nicodemus, doesn't, doesn't say to him, wow, Nicodemus, you know so much, your heart has been hardened, he says, how could you be a teacher of the law and not know these things? And so often what I find is the most prideful people 
actually don't know a lot. They have a lot. They actually are pretty ignorant and they're prideful about it. They know a few things that they try to kind of show off. But often the the, the great theologians of the history of the church who, who really were immersed in the scriptures, you begin to find a tenderness with them and a gentleness with them. At least that's been my experience. And it's the pharisaical people who are actually just really proud about their ignorance, but it looks like knowledge, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Like, he's yeah. still a teacher of the law. It's just not real. It hasn't taken root in their heart. And so the problem, uh, and I, I want to be clear about this, the problem is not theology. The problem is our broken hearts. But theology can be one of the tools that the Lord uses to mend our broken hearts, to make us softer and gentler people more like Jesus. And so we would just, just even to get even more practical, I would tell our students, look, if you take some of this knowledge and you use it to harm somebody else or you use it to, to build yourself up, you're, you're out. Like you're, you no longer get to stay in the program because the program's primary goal is to make you a greater lover of God and a greater lover of your neighbor. Amen. That's good. I mean, there's there's such a rich irony in, in like we we both are, have been around reform circles, right? And 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 relate there. But it's like these doctrines of grace. It's amazing how often we want to wield those as we get this better than you. <laughs> it's 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 incredibly mm-hmm. ironic. You don't understand like I do how gracious God is. <laughs> you don't understand like I do. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know that you can do nothing to make yourself lovable to God except for how much I know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's wild. Well, that's real. That, that's helpful, though, and 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 so that you're advocating for that being a really intentional part of your discipleship process is, is showing that and where it should lead you. That's right, and and, and part of that too is like that's um, what. And I, I please hear this with I mean this with gentleness, and it sounds weird to say it with humility, but that's what the Lord's done in my life. I still have pride. I still have sin. I still struggle every single day. But like p- part of the culture that we built was like, if, I, if a student asked me a question that I didn't know, do you know what I would say? I don't know. That's good. Or, or, or if a student asked me a question that I answered wrongly, and I learned that over the course of the next week, I would come back the next week and I would say, hey, brother, sister, you asked me a question and I was wrong. I answered incorrectly. You know, will you forgive me? I, I, or, or whatever. Like, they, they will model the teaching that they see. Yeah. And sometimes theologians are, 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 are jerks. But if they see somebody who's able to say, there's things that I don't know that I want to know, there's things that I know that actually are wrong and I want to keep learning, like, they will model the lifelong learners that they see. And if, if, you're, if the teachers become people who are gentle and meek and humble and desire to learn over the course of their lives, they're still students on a journey as well, then often that's what you'll see uh, replicated in the students. So, so you uh, maybe looking back at your um, uh, your experience at the village, and then your your present situation where you're uh, building into what you're doing at Storyline, um, and and so use those anecdotally when you're trying to um, build into your congregation uh, a deeper knowledge of the Bible, of theology, and spiritual disciplines. Uh, what does that look like? on the ground. How, how are you, um, you're asking, trying to ask better questions and, and then you're, and you're trying to have a philosophy of ministry that uh, is robust in light of coming to hopefully what you'd consider uh, the right conclusions on, on, the, on asking the right questions. How does that ministry start to look without being, well, do this program over here and this one over here and then do this like this. But, but there are probably some, some general ways that this starts to look 
or have a pattern in the local church. What does that pattern look like as you're trying to form deep disciples in in your local church? Yeah, I mean, I don't mean to oversimplify it, but we we just don't do anything else, whether it's a program or even a conversation in the life of our churches that, that don't kind of fit those three buckets. Bible, theology, and spiritual formation. So if somebody comes to me and says, hey, we'd really love to do a, a financial class. Can you do that? I'm like, no, that is great. I'm so thankful you want to handle money better. But there's so many resources online that can do that. I, I, that's not my calling in my life. And that's not the calling of this church. It really narrows our focus down and to say, these are the things that we think disciples need. And then it just governs our conversations, whether we're doing a forum or we're doing home groups or we're doing summons. Like, we, I just want people... Again, I feel like I'm saying it almost too simply. I don't think there's a better discipleship tool than the storyline of the Bible. Like I was in a conversation the other day, and and somebody said to me, uh, which is actually really convenient that I'm in the storyline, right? Like we get some double entendres there. Um, But but, um, somebody said to me, hey, remember back in Bible times? And I said, well, what do you mean by that? He's like, well, you know, like that other world, the Bible thing. And I was like, hey, brother, I, I get what you're saying. But like, that's the story of this world. Like the story that we find in scripture is, is, is the world we're living in. God actually did that in this world. And Jesus is actually coming back to this world. And you can't participate in that story if you don't know it. And so knowing your Bible ceases to be something about like, okay, I've got a, what date, what date was the Babylonian conquest or when was exile and when did this prophet write? Like those things are fine to know. But when you begin to see it as the story of this world and you're called to participate in that story, then, 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 then like it just takes a part, it becomes a part of your culture in the church yeah. where Bible knowledge isn't like meant to be shown at some Bible quiz, but it's meant to be shown in, in being a greater participant in God's redemptive story in Christ. That's great. Um, I'm probably just asking you to say the same thing again, but I'm just going to ask it a different way. You know, you're this you're Let's this you're, yeah, you're this young man who has come to faith and is hungry to know Jesus more, grow in faith, and you go to your local pastor. This is your story, and say, "Hey, like I want to know more. I want to grow. I want to become a, a deeper disciple." Right. Essentially, to use this language, and he's like, "Oh, well, you need to go to seminary." Um, what What would you hope? What would you hope that your local church could have done for you when you ask that question? What What are you hoping is available to the congregant who has a similar story in each church these days? Totally, and that's a great question. So, like, I, I'm thankful for that pastor's answer. He's a good man and a good pastor. But I want to be able to give a different answer to my church. I want to be able to say, like, so there's a there's a like a restaurants here in the parking lot of our church we, we're kind of in an old shopping center and uh so there's like a starbucks and a pizza place whatever whenever i walk into those places i try to remind myself the next pastor of storyline fellowship might be in this room and not a christian right now mm-hmm. are we creating the kind of culture in our church where that person is going to hear the gospel and believe and then do we have the spaces and the kind of culture just within storyline fellowship to replicate me. That's the kind of church I want to lead. I don't want the next pastor of Storyline Fellowship to have to, you know, have to have to go to seminary or to have to, you know, spend fifty thousand dollars to go get a PhD. I want to say, like, brother, I, I want like discipleship is all about replicating yourself. And if a pastor isn't thinking about actually replicating other pastors and leaders in the life of this church, then and I hear this gently, but they're probably not a great pastor. They probably are looking for a platform more than they are for discipleship. 
Mm. And so like, I want to take that guy, I want to share the gospel with him, and I want to create spaces where he can grow in the knowledge of Christ and godliness here. Now, of course, if he wants to go to seminary or do supplemental stuff outside the church, great. But I want to provide the primary nutrients for that here in my church. Yeah. Hey, I've got just a couple final questions here, one on behalf of the congregant and one on behalf of the pastor. I'll, I'll ask the pastor question first because I am a bit selfish. So uh, some, some pastors of small churches may be listening and thinking, hey, that's great for large churches who can have a full-time discipleship pastor that can teach a bunch of classes, but it's not feasible in my context. But you, in your book, advocate for scalable, sustainable, and strategic deep discipleship. So what would you say to the boots-on-the-ground pastor of a smaller church or even a mid-to-larger-sized church that feels under-resourced or has been settling for surface-level discipleship? Totally. I think that this might actually be one of the most important questions we can talk about because this can feel a little out of reach sometimes for people. And I just want to say, like, unequivocally, it's not. I've seen these questions that I advocate for in the book be replicated. So, like, the book is not some kind of silver bullet, like, hey, here's your playbook, go do this. It really is. You need to ask these questions in your context in order to come up with better answers. And then the last part of the book is talking about that scalability factor, like, how do I replicate myself? And I, I try to point to Jesus's model of ministry where he has his different audiences that he's thinking about reaching and he's not reaching them all the same way. Like if you look at the gospels, you see Jesus has the crowds. Like at that point, he's the Sermon on the Mount. He's teaching to hundreds and thousands of people. And then and he also has those smaller groups. There's the 70 disciples that he sends out in Matthew and Luke. And then even smaller than that, like these, think about these like consecutive circles of smaller smaller groups of people. He's got the 12 disciples and then he's got the three disciples who are with him on that last night. And then he really has the one disciple, John, the beloved. And I just would advocate that a pastor should be thinking about himself and his ministry kind of like that. Not, again, not that it's some kind of a silver bullet, but you've got your congregation and then maybe you have your staff team and then maybe you have those two or three people that you're really trying to, to, to develop and to lead. And those people need to be getting the best of your time. It, it sounds so counterintuitive that the 500 people should get the best part of my time. But really, those two or three people, if you're replicating yourself in them and then you teach them to replicate themselves, what you're going to find is kind of this, this snowball effect. See, that's the contextualization for British Columbia. Uh, the <laughs> snowball effect of, of, of there being this momentum behind what you're doing where you're not just reaching the masses, but you're really reaching the one, two, maybe three people. So like, let me make it really boots on the ground. Storyline's about a thousand people or so uh, on a Sunday when we're full capacity. Um, we have about three, 400 kids, but, and I, I preach every single weekend. I want to preach to those thousand people that are, that are coming and watching online. But every other Sunday, I'm also gathered with five potential elder candidates and we're reading books together and we're, I don't have an institute built here. I'm informal yet, but I'm already thinking about how do I develop men that can lead the church with me? How can I develop my staff in these executive level women who are alongside me leading and making organizational decisions for us? How do I pour myself and give my best to them? And I don't care if you're pastoring bivocationally, you got 10 hours a week. You can do that, right? You can, you can figure out how do I give these 10 hours to three or four different groups of people and that, that can replicate myself over the long run. That's great stuff. So finally, last question, what would you say to the Christian who is a part of a local church and hungry to grow in their discipleship to Jesus? What would you say to them and what part of their discipleship growth 
is really truly their responsibility? And what part would you say is their church's responsibility? Yeah. Uh, again, I, I want to be sensitive here because sometimes you can hear this conversation and grow and maybe frustration with your church. Why am I not growing? Why don't they? And obviously that's not the right instinct. Uh, the Bible tells us that being full of the Holy Spirit, having the scriptures available to us mean that we have everything that we need for life and godliness. And so in some sense, you're right where God intends for you to be right now. You don't need to be angry. You don't need to be frustrated, but but you might have a desire growing in you. And that's a good desire that you want to fan into flame. And it might just be, hey, you need to grab two or three people who are like-minded and start doing Bible studies together. Open the scriptures and ask good questions. It might need to be that you need to go to your pastor and in a non-condemning way, uh, like not, not telling him that he's doing a bad job or something like that, but just say, I am for you, I am for this church, and I want more. Uh, I just had a conversation with a storyline member yesterday who was basically saying exactly that. We don't have everything figured out here, and there's things that we're missing and trying to get better on. And he sat down with me and pointed out some of those things, but he said, he said, JT, the reason I'm sitting with you is because I'm for you. I want more Bible. I want more community. I want more mission. Put me in the game. And so go to your pastor and say, I don't want to consume from you. I want to come alongside you and be a disciple and be a disciple maker. And then for for a pastor like me, that's music to my ears that I want, like I'm not having to convince you to be in. You're telling me that you're all in. All I've got to do is fan the flame. And I think if, if you're listening to this and you have a relationship with your pastor, go have that conversation with him. I think he'll be really encouraged. Hey, that's great stuff. JT, I can't tell you how significant this book and conversation are for me. You know, we're commissioned by Jesus to make and mature disciples in the local church. And your book is so helpful for diagnosing and treating our discipleship disease. And so I actually pray there's something of a discipleship reformation in our churches where we take the mandate given to us by Jesus seriously. So keep banging this drum, my friend. And uh, thanks for this conversation. This has been an encouragement to you, brother. Thank you so much for having me on. This book is a must-read for anyone thinking about discipleship in the local church context and anyone longing to grow in your discipleship to Jesus. Join me next week for a deep thought on If Jesus Rose, It Changes Everything. And the week after that, we're releasing a conversation I had with one of my heroes, Martin Smith. I can't wait to share it with you. Thanks for joining me for Deep Thoughts. I hope it helps you in fostering deep faith. Thank you. I mean, I've kind of, from a distance, I mean, Village Church was that kind of influential church that, that you saw and was on your radar. And so from afar, I was watching, you know, how you were doing your uh, your classes and stuff like that and just sort of gleaning from afar. So really neat for me as a pastor up in Canada to get my hands on your book and try and implement some of the intentional discipleship we're trying to do up here. So thanks for it. Yeah, and that's encouraging. And serving at, serving at TBC was one of the slowest honors of my life. I don't mean it like it's just a local church. It's not a big deal, but something I always like to tell folks who maybe have watched or been influenced by TBC is like this: the best thing about serving there is that the people are genuinely godly. Like you know, it's just easy to have kind of a big mega. Not easy, but we all know the stories of a big mega giga church with lots of influence, but lots of toxicity on yeah. the inside. 
and man, that just wasn't the case. Like just a lot of humility and, uh, you know, I've seen Matt Chandler be, I mean, he's godlier off the stage than he is on it. He's just a good man. I, I loved working with him. Wow. We need those, we need those kinds of encouraging stories these days, eh? Uh, no, no doubt. Yeah. And that all sounds awesome. Sounds like you have a great context for ministry. And, I mean, just sounds, I'm just glad to be a part of the conversation. Sweet. Well, I'm talking to like a podcast expert here too, right? So. <laughs> I don't know about that, man. I was the one who didn't want to do it and I just found <laughs> myself along for the ride. <laughs> it's pretty special. Like, where did Jen Wilkin come from? She was just there. Like, my our women's ministry well, absolutely, absolutely adore her. Well, that's what's kind of wild about the story. And I don't really go into depth into this in the book, but like... So TVC, again, like just a regular local church that has successes and failures and owns their failures. Like one of their biggest mistakes, I think they would say now is about, you know, I mean, so Matt gets to TVC and it's like 127 people. And, you know, he just has the kind of personality that even if he was selling, you know, popcorn, it would be successful. (laughs) And so like it just exploded. It just got to be a huge church. Like it was grown by a thousand people a year. Jen Wilkin just joined the church because her husband got a job there. This is before she was, you know, the Jen Wilkin started a Bible study in her home and they grew from five people to 10 people to 20 people to 30 people. And eventually it was like, Hey, can we use your facility? And then it started getting bigger. So at the same time, you have both of these kind of mini organizations, you know, getting really big yeah. to the point where TVC is three or four campuses and Jen's Bible study is a thousand women. And the staff was just beat down. It was a young staff. It was a, if they were immature in ministry, I don't mean like immature Christians. They, oh, they've never must done have been before. just overwhelmed. How do you how do you totally. take on a thousand? No systems, no processes. So they read a book, a uh, pretty famous book by Eric Geiger, named uh, it's called Oh Gosh, Simple Church. Simple Church, yeah. And so they cut everything, including Jen's study. Like they just they just axed it, like it was there one minute and then gone the next. Yeah. And you got a thousand women who are ready to burn, you know, houses down because they're <laughs> loving like. So, so Jen was just in the church. Like when I showed up, like she had done stuff at the church I was at in Louisville. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm sure Jen's ministry is enormous at the village. I show up and on my like second or third day, I walk into the communication suite and she's working part-time as a blog editor to put her kids through college. Like that was, that was all she was doing. Whoa. And meanwhile, she's doing the Gospel Coalition National Conference, ERLC stuff, and didn't have a place to serve in her own local church. And so two or three weeks in, I was like, I need you to come work for me. And she's like, I, I'm not going to come work for you. I've had, you know, I've been beaten up too much in ministry. I just want to get this job done get my kids through school and go do stuff outside the church. And I said, no, you, I know you want to serve inside the church. And then she says, well, I don't, I don't know that I can trust you because she's had experience. I mean, she's a strong leader. And she's like, I, you know, my experience is, is men are intimidated by me. And I, literally, I said to her, Jen, I'm married to Macy English, one of the most high-capacity, ca- high high-competent leaders. Yeah. You don't intimidate me one bit. <laughs> and she would tell you that was the moment. She was like, I think I can work for this guy. Whoa. And so then so then she started working for me. We brought the Bible study back. And, I mean, now she's on the executive team and just crushing it. And that's not because, like, I don't tell that story to say, like, pat JT on the back or anything like that. Like, Talk about the easiest decision in the world. Jen Wilkins <laughs> yeah, at your church. Yeah. Should you hire her to lead women's Bible study? Like, it wasn't like I had some kind of like virtuous moment where I was like, hey, this is, man, God, thank you for this. It was like, she's going to our life. Like, it was the, cool. the it, you know, it's just easy. So, anyway. Praise God. Now we've become really good friends. We're actually writing a book together right now. Oh, cool. um, uh, it's like an intro to theology.